Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And in a recent episode, we talked about the famous Juana La Loca, or Joanna the Mad. Um, a frequent listener request. A very frequent request. And as I admitted in the last show, a subject I originally considered covering during Halloween. But I don't even really want to call her Juana La Loca anymore. Once you research her story, it starts to sound kind of mean for a lot of reasons. Juana of Castile was a queen in her own right, and one who seemed to be um, pretty badly treated by some of the most important people in her life. Her father, Ferdinand, as in Ferdinand and Isabella, her husband, Philip of Burgundy, and her son, Charles. Uh, It's a disturbing story, partly because it still is so unclear how bad off was Lana, really. And why did she make the decisions that she made? And we may speculate about that a little bit in this part, too. But where we left off last time, Juana had come into a very unlikely inheritance. She was the third child of her parents, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. But through a series of unfortunate deaths, she became their heir. Juana returned to Spain after receiving that news, along with her husband, Philip, For some years, Philip and Juana had had a pretty explosive relationship, one where Philip was certainly uh, mentally abusive toward Juana, perhaps physically abusive. And her parents were disturbed, not just because of the personal relationship her daughter had with her husband, but also because of Philip's own politics. He wasn't unabashedly pro-Spanish. They were concerned that eventually their kingdoms... Ferdinand's Aragon and and Isabella's Castile would come under foreign control, and and they weren't exactly happy with that. So they tried to get Juana to stay in Spain when Philip went back to Burgundy. But for some reason, which we can't quite surmise, she decided to go back to him anyway. And in fact, even through a series of tantrums in order to be able to go back to him. So that's sort of where we're picking up now. She's gone back to him. And those tantrums are a really key part of the story, too, because they were public. They were disturbing. Juana, you know, at first tried to reason with her mother about returning to Philip. You know, my children are there. It's my husband. It's my duty. Uh, But Isabella was not interested in hearing that. You know, she wanted to keep Juana with her, raise her up to to be an independent monarch. Um, so yeah, Wana Wana reacted by not eating and not sleeping and not talking and standing out in the rain. And all of it finally did result, like you just said, in, in her being allowed to return to her husband. But it also upset Isabella and it gave the public uh, the barest hint that maybe Wana was unstable. And this was kind of a perfect setup for Philip. Juana was back in Burgundy by May 1504, and if she thought her public demonstration of loyalty to Philip was going to be met with love or respect from him, she was dead wrong. Rumors about the couple went from bad to worse. She physically attacked a woman that she believed Philip was sleeping with. He, as a result, had her locked up in her rooms, and he sent away her ladies and her favorite servants. He may have hit her, and he circulated rumors that she was mad, unhinged, and unfit to rule, though anyone who saw her in public thought that this was 
pretty much entirely she untrue. She seemed like a perfectly competent, respectable lady. And um, according to the Women in World History Encyclopedia, it's likely that Juana had manic depression, and that would partly explain the ups and downs and the entirely rational behavior that she exhibited when she was uh, in public or with guests. And uh, that entry actually suggested that this never would have been reason enough to disqualify a male ruler. Uh, but in Juana, it could be considered debilitating madness, something that Uh, meant Philip or perhaps Ferdinand, her father, should rule in her stead. Just months after Juana's return, though, this really became an issue because until now it wasn't. Isabella was still ruling Castile. Ferdinand was still ruling Aragon. But in November 1504, Isabella suddenly died. Isabella was uh, a, a woman who was certainly interested in looking after the future of her kingdom and especially this fragile unity between her kingdom and her husband's. And she was concerned with what she had seen of Juana's rages and concerned by Philip's influence over her. We just mentioned that as as a foreigner. She was afraid he wouldn't be uh, entirely in Spain's own best interests. Well, since he didn't act interested at all. No, he didn't act interested. That's an, that's another good point. Uh, Isabella also accounted for the possibility that her daughter might not be fit to rule and tried to make sure that however that went down, it would be Ferdinand and not Philip who stood up in Juana's place as regent. So in her will, Isabella said that Juana, her, quote, beloved daughter, was her heiress, but in case, quote, she might not like or might be unable to reign or govern, the government should be somehow carried on. Her nominee until little Charles came of age was Ferdinand, of course, who had, quote, great experience of the government of the said kingdoms. And a lot has been made of that wording, <laughs> um, especially the the first part you read, Diplina, that she might not like or might be unable to reign or govern. And while it's clear that Juana was eventually betrayed by her husband, by her father, and by her son Charles, her mother's role in that is a little bit less clear. Right. Was Isabella opening up an official path for Juana to be declared insane, or was she honestly concerned by Juana's actions? Was she just worried that Juana was under Philip's thumb and, quote, might not like to reign because it would cause marital strife? I mean, the possibilities are kind of endless there. They really are. But even if Juana and Philip did rule... Isabella had a little catch in in her orders here that made sure Ferdinand was still in the loop somehow. She wrote that they should obey him, quote, as good and obedient children. Uh, So it was pretty important for Ferdinand to get this official nod from his dying wife since he had no personal claim to Castile. And we described this at more length in the last podcast, but he was just the king of Aragon. And that partnership between the two kingdoms, and Castile was the more powerful of the two and the larger of the two, really relied on both of them being alive. So at first, he he played humble. You know, he put on a show like he accepted this, publicly acknowledged his daughter as the new Queen of Castile, renounced any claims he had there. But there was a delay of 15 months before Juana and Philip again returned to Spain. And that gave both Ferdinand and Philip time to make their own plans against Juana. So Philip, for his part, proclaimed himself king. 
and so did Ferdinand. He announced this at the Council of Toro, said that his daughter was unfit to rule. So sort of like, thanks for that convenient insanity story, I'll Philip. pick up that story. Yeah, I can use that one, mind. too. He also made a French alliance, marrying Germaine de Foix, the niece of Louis XII, and so if they had a son, at least Aragon would slip out of Juana's inheritance and Philip's control. But Castilian nobles were not fans of Ferdinand at all, and this new French marriage only made things worse. And so when Philip and Juana arrived in April 1506, they offered up their support to Philip and Juana. And finally, Ferdinand, too, seeing how the situation really was, finally decided that it might be better to work with Philip than risk war alienating him. And so in June of 1506, the two men signed a treaty. Just Juana was not included in this at all, um, unsurprisingly. And they acknowledged that she was unfit to rule. Almost immediately, though, Ferdinand backed out of the treaty. He said it interfered with his daughter's rights. And it's around this point, too, that Juana, who had been using her best political tactic of delay the entire time she was in Spain, you know, not signing anything, saying that she wanted to meet with her father first, she wanted counsel first, must have at this point finally decided that Philip was not working in her own interests and attempted an escape from him on horseback. You know, she claimed she was going out for a a light horseback ride, made a dash for it, trying to reach her father, who had by this point left Castile for Aragon. She was quickly caught by Philip's soldiers. So this gave Philip a pretty clear sign that Juana was a threat to him uh, or to, to his claims. And he also had the approval of the Castilian Cortes in his favor. So he had legitimacy for his regency on behalf of her. So he was ready to imprison her, to lock her up. I mean, we talked about how he had done that before back home. Um, and he thought that his stories he'd been circulating for so long now that she was mentally unbalanced, had enough traction that the public would accept it, that they would accept him. But just like the last episode where there were repeated unexpected illnesses and sudden deaths, unexpected illness struck again, and Philip became desperately ill with a fever. Juana, who was five months pregnant at this point, nursed him for six days before he died September 25th in 1506 at only age 28. So what happened next is kind of the core of the Juana La Loca legend. For a period of several months, Juana just froze while the country fell into complete disorder. She needed to make a plan to find a way to claim her throne without ardent supporters or any money. So by December 18th, she finally swung into action. She canceled Philip's appointments and concessions and trying to set up a council. And in a fateful decision, she ordered Philip's body to be removed to Granada, where her mother was buried. It made sense from a dynastic perspective. While Philip may have been abusive and manipulative in life, it would have made a statement about him in death that he was this powerful ruler from a powerful family that deserved to be buried near Queen Isabella. So this was important for Juana's son's future in a way. She saw it as a good PR move almost. But it turned out to be a bad decision, especially when the elaborate funeral procession had to stop just a few days after starting for Juana to give birth to her daughter Catalina. 
Her insistence that the procession begin again gave her enemies the opportunity to categorize her as this deranged widow, someone who would open the coffin to look at her husband. But it's interesting to add here that Julia Fox, the author of Sister Queens, notes that there really is no mention of coffin opening from the chronicler who was on the trip. And even if it was opened, it was probably just so Juana could ID Philip. Meanwhile, though, with this macabre procession going on and rumors building around it, the country was suffering from famine and civil war seemed imminent. And Ferdinand came swooping back into Castile to to handle everything. He took over Juana's money, took over her household, took away Prince Ferdinand. Uh, that was the son who had been born when, when she and Philip first returned to Spain. Her elder children were being raised off in Burgundy still. But Juana didn't and wouldn't actually relinquish her rights to her father. She wouldn't sign the papers that renounced her claim as queen. I think this is one of the most fascinating parts of the story, um, her insistence on this point. I mean, clearly being queen was important to her, regardless of anything else that happens. That didn't matter, though, to Ferdinand. He could forge the documents. And by the spring of 1509, Juana's father had her and baby Catalina and Philip's body all sent off to Tordesillas Castle. The body was put into the care of the nuns of St. Clair, which was nearby. Juana was 29 years old, and she spent the next 46 years in Tordesillas. It was, of course, important for Ferdinand during this time to keep Juana alive, because without her, little Charles would become king. And since he was off in Burgundy being raised by his Aunt Margaret, it was likely that Ferdinand would have to deal with plenty of interference from the boy's paternal grandfather, Maximilian. Who was the Holy Roman Emperor, a a worthy (laughs) opponent to Ferdinand, certainly. Exactly. But aside from that, there were few considerations made for Juana at all. Tordesillas was a favorite old retreat of queens, but it was extremely isolated. So Juana had luxurious possessions like tapestries and fine clothes, but she only had two rooms to live in. She had a large religious library and was sometimes allowed out to the convent, and she educated Catalina herself. That was really her her main uh, purpose in life, it seemed, educating her daughter, uh, because nobody else was around, really. Ferdinand, who only visited her twice in seven years, would pass on information to her from time to time, but he didn't allow her to write, and there are no records of her having written anything again from when she goes into Tordesillas at age 29. Uh, sometimes she did show unhinged behavior. You know, she would refuse to eat or sleep. She attacked her women guards. But it was also clear by the care that was taken to keep her out of the public eye that she was not insane. She was not the woman... Um, rumors had her being. If anyone really saw her, Ferdinand was afraid that they would know she was being imprisoned unjustly. When Ferdinand died in January, January 23rd, 1516, having failed to have a surviving son with his second wife, it left Juana technically Queen of Castile and Aragon. Juana's son Charles, though, maintained the same policy that his grandfather had, and he quickly claimed the throne for himself. And Charles wasn't popular. He had been raised abroad, and the Castilians really resented his immediate assumption that he would just bypass his mother and take the throne. So Charles had an uphill battle to gain control over Castile and Aragon, but he had a more immediate problem as well. 
the people of Tordesillas rebelled against Juana's treatment. They had long heard the rumors that Juana's caretaker, Mossein Ferrer, was abusing the queen, and upon Ferdinand's death, they decided to chase Ferrer out of town. And so after this, Charles sent a Cardinal Cineros to stop the riots and to investigate these claims, and the Cardinal was actually disturbed enough to order Ferrer never to be let near the queen again. And in fact, letters from Ferrer do suggest that he was willing to put her on the rack and stop herself harm protests like starvation, though Fox says it's more likely that she was beaten. I mean, still not good. But. No, and, and this is, a, I think, probably a good point, too, to mention that while a lot has been speculated about Juana's mental state, certainly situations like this would not have helped it over the years and what uh, more than 40 years of imprisonment would eventually do to somebody, especially under circumstances like this where you're possibly threatened or beaten um, because of protesting in the only way you can. It's not going to help matters. But Charles may not have wanted his mother beaten. You know, he he removed this guy. But he didn't exactly swoop in to save the day either, you know, to remove her, to to return her to court, or certainly to allow her to, to rule. And in fact, he played off Ferdinand as the bad guy. He visited his mother in 1517 for the first time since he was a child. I don't think they had seen each other since she left Burgundy to go to Spain. But he didn't tell her that Ferdinand was dead. You know, it was just, oh, I'm around the castle. <laughs> Thought I'd swing by for a visit. Um, and in reality, he just kept her thinking Ferdinand was alive. He was the guy behind her imprisonment. And this decision to not tell her about Ferdinand kind of exposes the full duplicity of, of Charles's story. You know, he proclaimed that Juana had given him her blessing. He was trying to get that approval, you know, not looking like he was just completely bypassing, bypassing or skipping over his mother. Um, said she'd given him her blessing, but how could she have done that, of course, if she didn't even know that Ferdinand was dead? Um, Charles did some housekeeping, too, while he was there. He replaced her temporary guard with a guard of his choice, the Marquis of Dania and his wife. And the Danias really crack down on Juana's already pretty limited life. Yeah, they no longer even allowed her to visit the convent, and she protested this by not hearing mass at all. They stopped her also from meeting any of the nobles who tried to see her. They even stole from her. They wrote to Charles saying, quote, the torture might help her condition. There's no record that he approved this, though. They even tried to avoid doctors coming in in case word got out that Juana was sane. At one point, Juana even had a 10-day fever, and they wouldn't let a doctor come in to help her get well. And, you know, the same goes for Catalina, too, who was growing up here. Uh, she was sick at one point and wasn't allowed to see a doctor for quite some time. Um, Daniel was really obsessive, too, very paranoid. He was obsessed with gossiping ladies, maids, and servants. And he even wrote to Charles at one point, quote, It cannot be permitted that she speak with anybody because she would convince anyone. So that's, <laughs> that's pretty damning, I'd say. But Charles is a bit of an enigma because of the way he's treating his, his mother, but also the close regard he had for a lot of other family members. And of course, the most famous of those is Catherine of Aragon, his aunt, who was in her terrible situation with uh, Henry VIII eventually trying to unload her to marry Anne Boleyn. He was a staunch supporter of hers, but also with his younger sister, Catalina, who had grown up 
in Tordesillas with her mother. She was 11 years old at the time Charles inherited. And when he tried to remove her, he thought she should be socialized a little bit. Juana just spiraled deeper and deeper into depression. And so Charles at least knew enough to keep his mother alive and and to keep her happy enough by returning Catalina to her. Juana from then on tried to keep her daughter in sight and told Dania that she'd kill herself if they took Catalina away again. And when the time finally came for a teenage Catalina to leave and marry, Juana stood at the last point that she saw Catalina for 24 hours. So just another note here, Catalina's complaining letters to Charles made it clear that he knew all about how the Danias were treating his mother, the stealing and all of that, and he still didn't do anything about it. Plus, if he thought that his mother was truly insane, why would he allow his sister to stay with uh, him? I, f- I find Catalina the really uh, fascinating part of the story. I, it's like somebody should write a um, historical novel about her experiences growing up in the castle almost. Um, let's do it, Diplina. <laughs> um, it's easy, though, to wonder why Charles didn't free his mother, uh, especially if he knew she was not insane. But just like his father, like his grandfather before him, he did know that his power relied on Juana being alive, but out of commission. Um, and as an unpopular foreigner, especially one leading the Inquisition, one who had brought his own clique with him from Burgundy, um, throwing out Spanish guys, he was especially concerned that Castilians might choose his mother over him, even if they didn't necessarily allow her to rule in her own right. I mean, it was made clear after years of this that Juana could be uh, successfully used as a figurehead (laughs) while somebody else actually did the work of the government. And this became especially worrisome for Charles in 1519. It was just two years after he had arrived in Spain when his paternal grandfather Maximilian died. And we mentioned in the last episode that the position of Holy Roman Emperor was not inherited, but you had to have good connections, and Charles certainly had them. He was a likely candidate up against guys like Henry VIII, Francis I of France. Um, but to to increase the likelihood he would get to become Holy Roman Emperor, it meant he had to leave Spain for a little bit, right at this shaky, nerve-wracking sort of time. And as a side note here, Fox writes how, again, Juana wasn't told of Maximilian's death, just that he had abdicated. So when Dania suggested she write a note of thanks to Maximilian for the, quote, favor he'd shown her son, Juana was like, Maybe you should do it, because I haven't written to him since I've been in prison this whole time. Well, and Fox notes, too, that that's kind of a might have been Dania hoping to get even more ammunition against the Juana is crazy, especially when it comes to dead people. Uh, if she's this lady who followed her husband around and kissed right. his dead body's feet, maybe it wouldn't be too surprising that she was writing letters off to her dead father-in-law. But Castile did, in fact, take this opportunity to rise up against Charles when he was out of the country, and a group of rebels started what was called the Comunero Revolt. On August 23, 1520, a group of Comunero officials finally got past Dania in order to plead before the queen. They offered her Castile, they begged her to help her people, and asked her to sign her approval. And for about 100 days, Juana met with the rebels and listened to their offers. She took up her favorite political tactic again, though, here. She started to delay. She wouldn't sign anything until she could call a council of her own. 
Finally, though, miraculously almost, she chose her family again, even all after all that had happened to her, saying of Charles, quote, all that belonged to her was his and he would take good care of it. Uh, super sad. <laughs> I don't know. It, yeah, it's more unexpected than miraculous, at least from Juana's perspective, yeah. because as soon as the rebellion was put down, you know, Charles didn't come in saying, oh, it's really glad to hear what you what you said. Instead, he rewarded her loyalty with an even stricter regime at Tordesillas. She was cut down to one room. Eventually, of course, Catalina was taken away um, and she was stuck with the hated Danias, too. She would complain about them bitterly. Apparently, just the sound of their voices became agonizing for her to hear. And they were the only ones she heard, <laughs> I guess. The only people there. Um and so just kind of, I don't know, we can't go into too much more detail about that. Just similar days, day in, day out for decade after decade, 46 years. Um, the strangest part of this story, though, is that there are these little bright spots in it. You'd think this woman would be 100% shunned by her family if they were willing to do this to her, but that wasn't the case. Her family did visit her sometime. They would bring the kids, bring the grandkids. Um, they certainly weren't considering her a deranged woman who might be dangerous to the hopes of their kingdoms. <laughs> but they also didn't exactly let her back into the family circle. No, no, certainly not. Um, even as Charles's position became more secure, too, I think this surprised me. And this is just um, um, it's just hard to imagine why you would keep your family member in prison for so long. But why they didn't let her back in as some sort of dowager queen type role, especially as she grew older. Uh, according to Fox, though, there were 16 family visits between 1535 recorded and visits. 1555. Yeah, recorded visits. Um and like I said, bringing the grandkids, bringing the kids, um, her grandson Philip stopping before he married a cousin and then stopping before he married another cousin, that time Mary Tudor. Uh, very, I don't know, just a, a part I can't really understand of this story. She did have them on one point, though, and that was religion. It was sort of the one thing that she could really control. So after her confessor was dismissed in 1523, she just stopped making a full confession. And this was something that really immensely disturbed Charles and his son Philip as well and her granddaughters. Everyone just couldn't handle this for some reason. No, they were they were deeply concerned about Juana's soul, the state of her soul. What would happen should she die? Um by age 75, those fears became pretty major for them. She was getting very frail. She did die April 11th or 12th in 1555. Uh, before her death, she was willing to make a partial confession because her family was desperate at this point, trying to get her to do it. Uh, but she held out on the full deal, kind of feisty to the end here. And once she was dead, too, this is again where the story changes. She's not somebody to be hidden away anymore. She's somebody for the family to celebrate. She was entombed in Granada with her husband, Philip. He ended up there just where she wanted him to be, ultimately. Um, Ferdinand and Isabella, little Prince Miguel, um, all of them end up where Juana was expecting them to. Yeah, so she finally, I guess, was an accepted part of the family after all those years of being shunned. After she died. So it's a sad ending to a story that was really entirely unexpected. 
It is. I certainly went into it expecting and and knowing that there was a lot of controversy over uh, whether she was really Juana Laloka, Joanna the Mad, um, and um, you know how much the the power play among her family members had to do with her long imprisonment. Uh, but it's one crazy thing. I mean, not to make a bad pun there, is if you go around reading stories about Juana, uh, different sources still treat her. Uh, condition as insanity, you know, like she was in prison because she was insane, um, rather than getting into the, the full story behind it, you know, how her mental state is, is troubled clearly, but certainly not to the level that her family claimed it was, although it degraded too over time. Well, as it would when mm-hmm. you're imprisoned for that long and unable to, to talk to, to anyone or to leave or to do anything that you want to do to even to write. But I think in a sense, it's probably almost easier just to say, well, choose crazy because even if you know the full story, you could speculate forever about why the decisions, why she made the decisions that she made. Well, I mean, and why her family made the decisions they made too. I mean, right. power aside, um, why some of the things that happened happened. But certainly a fascinating story. I'm glad that we finally covered this one. I hope all those listeners who suggested it enjoyed it. Uh, and, you know, sorry it's not a super macabre kiss in the dead body foot episode, but <laughs> it's just not how it turned out. So, Dublina, we have a really fascinating listener mail today. Yeah, you were saying. It comes from Facebook. Not all listener mail comes from email. That is very true. And it's from listener Ellen, who was writing about our episode on the real Tokyo Rose, Eva Toguri, uh, an episode both of us really enjoyed learning about. And one I think is kind of stuck with us, too, just as a another tragic sort of story. Definitely. Um, but Ellen wrote in to say that she knew Eva growing up. In fact, her mother was... Eva's best friend after after the imprisonment and all of that remember from the episode she moved to Chicago where her father ran a very successful store and, and lived in Chicago so that's where Ellen's mother um, met Eva uh, but it's it's a great message and I'm just going to read part of it but the part that I found really touching were uh, Ellen's memories of Eva and and how she really kept a lot of humor in her life, something that was incredibly surprising to us considering all she had been through. But just to read a little bit of that, she wrote, Eva was a little fireball. Into her old age, she was full of energy and humor, very quick to make you laugh and share hilarious stories. She had that voice that was so amazing that I can still hear it today. Listening to the old radio broadcasts on the podcast brought back many happy memories. Eva never let her hard life show on her face or in her personality. No one really knew who she was when they came into the store and was checking out their stuff at the register. She liked to remain anonymous to the outside world because she always considered herself an American and was deeply proud of that. She didn't want to stir up attention to her past for herself and for her father's business. So this was a really touching email. And and she she went on to say, too, that um, she didn't really realize who she was or how famous she was. Ellen didn't, rather, until she was uh, older, um, just because Eva always focused on uh, on others, really. But that's kind of an example of some of the cool (laughs) personal connections we sometimes hear about between listeners and the podcast. Wow. 
That is pretty amazing. Thank you for sharing, yes. Ellen. That story, like you said, I think it, it really touched both of us a lot. And it, the quote uh, that we mentioned about the, the tiger changing its stripes, when, when we were reading that quote, I was reading that quote during the episode, I got really choked up. And the funny thing is, I got choked up when I read it the first time. And when I read it again and when I read it on the podcast and then later I was repeating it to my husband and I was retelling the story and I got choked up then too. It's just something about it. It's just. And, and this is a story I've also, I retold it to my fiance. I retold it to a woman we work with. Um, not something I usually, I'm, I'm not sure if listeners imagine we're just always telling these podcasts to our friends. I try to avoid that. I usually <laughs> think, you know, if people want to hear it, they can listen. Um, but yeah, I just felt like I had to tell other people this story. And, um, I was happy too to hear that, uh, Eva's later life did seem fulfilling too. Um, that, certainly added something to my understanding of, of the subject. So thank you so much, Ellen, for writing in to, to share such a touching story. If you guys want to share any personal connections to subjects, I don't know how many folks are going to have Juana Laloca connections. Mm-hmm. Unless you're European royalty, then sure. probably. <laughs> then write to us, definitely. <laughs> um, no, or just joking. suggestions, you know, the drill, whatever, whatever you guys want to say we are at history podcast at discovery.com we're also on twitter at missed in history and we're on facebook and again we mentioned it a few times during the podcast but julia fox's book on juana is really interesting it's actually a dual biography called sister queens covering juana's life and her sister catherine of aragon who as people always say, would make another fabulous subject. So true. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Catherine of Aragon's famous husband, Henry VIII, we have an article about that. It's 10 Heads That Rolled, heads that rolled. During Henry VIII's Reign. And you can look up that one by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.